We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this season where we can, where we are called to put our hope and faith in your promised King who has come and is coming and is with us now. And we thank you, Lord Christ, for your word. And I pray that you would give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us, that we might be strengthened in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to uh, turn your attention to that prophecy in Isaiah uh, today. That's on page 9 in your bulletin. And really looking at the first five verses of this prophecy of God's, God's perfect king. And so we'll look at how Isaiah describes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit God's promised king, God's perfect king. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, there's a sad phrase that has become more common over these last couple of years. And uh, the phrase is, um, deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. And that is referring to suicide, especially among uh, middle-aged men and, and older American men. People are noticing uh, a rise in suicide among men in the United States in those uh, age groups. And they're calling these deaths of despair. Despair, a sense of hopelessness about the future. And I read an article recently that in order to combat these deaths of despair, some counselors are encouraging men who struggle with depression, to put together what they call hope kits. Hope kits. And in this kit, in this box, they are to put things like plans for the future and goals that they might have and memorabilia and pictures of loved ones so that they have, in those moments of despair, they can go to that hope box and open it up And remind themselves that they have something to live for. And that they have a future. Not a bad idea. Hope kits. Well, I thought about these hope kits when I was reflecting on our passage from Isaiah. Because here God gives his people reasons to hope. Even when they're struggling with despair and doubt and difficulty. You see, the earliest readers of Isaiah... The earliest readers of Isaiah would have been reading this after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and threatened the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And they would have read this after the Babylonian Empire had already invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, took control of Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The first hearers of Isaiah would have been familiar with that history. The first readers of it. And in Psalm 79, we have a reflection by the psalmist there about what it felt like after the destruction of the temple. And this is the psalmist praying to God. 
They have defiled your temple. They have poured out the blood of your servants like water. And he's asking, where are you, God? And is there any hope for us? What reason for hope did God give his people who suffered like this? Where could they look to to combat despair about the future? Well, in Isaiah 11, God calls them and calls us to put our hope in his promised king, the Messiah. And in these verses that I want to look at with you today, he gives a description of this perfect king, this Messiah. And this description should encourage us to put our faith and hope in God's promise. So let's look at how God describes through the prophet Isaiah his Messiah. First of all, he describes the king's ancestry, the king's ancestry. He is a descendant of King David, the son of Jesse. You see that in verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear Fruit, Jesse, the father of David. And you remember that in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David. God made a covenant promise, a binding agreement. That's what covenant means. That's how God relates to his people, through covenants, through promises. And God made a covenant agreement with David in 2 Samuel 7. He promised David that a descendant would come from him who would reign on David's throne forever. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, God said. Your throne be established forever. And so here we see a promise from God of an eternal kingdom from the line of David. Well, after the Babylonians came, after King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and King Nebuchadnezzar had the last king of Judah from the line of David, Zedekiah, had him uh, watch as the Babylonians slaughtered Zedekiah's sons. The line wiped out, so he thought. And then blinded Zedekiah and put him into prison. And it seemed after that that this promise could not be fulfilled. It appeared that God was not going to be able to keep his promise about an everlasting Davidic kingdom. But Isaiah is saying here, after the destruction, after the tree, the line has been chopped down, a little green shoot is going to emerge from this stump. There's going to be a green shoot, and this green shoot is going to grow into a branch. And from this branch, there's going to be fruit. You see, God's going to do a new work, a creative work. And about 700 years later, after this prophecy, a little baby was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which Luke calls the city of David. Now, that's because David's family was from Bethlehem. 
Often we see Jerusalem referred to as the city of David, and that's true. But in a sense, Bethlehem is the city of David because that little town is where his family is from. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus was born out of the line of David. And Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth, which sounds remarkably similar to the Hebrew word for, get this, branch. So a shoot is emerging here. A branch is beginning to grow from the line of David. God's promise is being fulfilled. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? They had been witnesses at this point of his great miracles. They had been astonished by his wisdom. Awed, awed, in fear sometimes, in the presence of his great power. They had been captivated by the holiness and compassion of Christ. And so he turns to them and he says, what are people saying about me? Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah must be resurrected from the dead. And Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? In light of all that you've heard, in light of all that you've seen, And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. You are this promised Messiah of God, sent by God. God is fulfilling these ancient promises in you, Jesus. You are the Christ of God, the promised one. God promised an ancestor of David who would inherit an everlasting throne, and then God fulfilled that promise by sending his son into the world. So that question is a question for all of us, isn't it? Who are, who do you say, Jesus says. Jesus, ask us, who do you say that I am? The God of the Bible is a promise-keeping God. Now, he operates... In a different time zone. His timing is not our timing. Um, He operates outside of time. And so, he, as the scripture says, views a day like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Talk about the relativity of time, huh? God's timing in terms of fulfilling his promises is on a different scale than ours. His method of fulfilling his promises is greater than what we can conceive. But we can put our hope in his promised word. So we have a description of the king's ancestry from the line of David. Then we have a description of the king's anointing here. He's anointed by the Spirit of God. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And if you trace this, you could circle every time it says Spirit, and then what the Spirit does, you will get seven circles or seven underlines in your Bible. 
The spirit of the God shall, of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counseling, of might, of knowledge, and number seven, the fear of the Lord. So here we have what? A sevenfold anointing of the spirit of God upon this promised king. And what does the number seven mean in the Bible? It signifies fullness and completeness. A sevenfold anointing of the spirit. The spirit of God is equipping this king for everything that he needs to administer his kingdom. We don't have time to discuss each attribute, but that is the basic point. That God will give this king all that he needs through his spirit to be the perfect ruler of his kingdom. And so we can trust this king. Raymond Ortland says, Unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. Unlike every other leader in our sorry history, we have nothing to fear, he goes on to say, from Jesus. We're foolish to resist him. We can never be too loyal to him. You see, uh, unlike human leaders, Jesus doesn't disappoint. Human leaders, don't they, over and over, whether we're talking about elected officials or people we might work for or even church leaders, oftentimes they disappoint us. Oftentimes they use their position to serve others or to serve themselves rather than other people. And yet Jesus came and he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life away as a ransom for many. And even the good leaders and the godly leaders that God gives us cannot perfectly embody all of these seven attributes. But Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the perfect man. He's the perfect God man. So he has all that we need. And he has proven his goodness and his love to us at the cross of Christ. We have nothing to fear from Jesus. No reason not to trust him. Every reason to remain perfectly loyal to him. No other leader deserves the loyalty and trust that Jesus does. And we remember at his baptism how he was anointed by the Spirit and then he demonstrated, didn't he? He demonstrated that he is the Messiah and that he's bringing in the kingdom of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he healed the sick. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he cast out demons. And he said, if I'm casting out demons, then the, Spirit, then the, then the kingdom of God has come among you. If you see me doing this, and he taught with great wisdom and authority under the anointing of the Spirit. And now, the one who was fully anointed by the Spirit, the good news is that he gives us the Holy Spirit. As John the Baptist says, he is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He can do this work of bringing us the very life of God, the power and presence and love of God through the Holy Spirit into our lives as we turn to Christ the King. We can experience the presence and power and purity of God today through Christ the King 
as he gives us the Holy Spirit. Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. We have nothing to fear from him. We're foolish to resist him. Are there places in our lives where we're resisting the reign of this king? And if so, why? Are we doubting his goodness? Are we doubting the promises of God that are attached to this king? Let's not do that. Let's, let's completely trust this anointed king with our lives now and with the future. So he describes Jesus' ancestry. He describes this king's anointing. And then we see his righteous acts. His righteous acts. Now, the word righteousness and justice in the Bible are basically interchangeable at many points. Justice and righteousness are almost synonymous. Not quite. It depends on context. But the the root words are often the, the same. Justice and righteousness. And so here we see that the righteousness of this king, his righteous act primarily highlighted here is one of bringing justice into the world. A righteous person is a just person. And he is righteous because, and he's perfectly just because, it says, he delights in the fear of the Lord. You see, if you fear God, you won't fear any man. And uh, I would like to grow in the fear of the Lord so I don't fear man as much as I do. But this is a king who has no fear of man. His, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He is perfectly obedient to God. He is concerned above all else to do the will of God. And because he fears the Lord and not man, he's not going to be persuaded by appearance, social or economic status, or whether or not somebody has a high-powered lawyer. He's going to bring perfect justice to each individual and to the world. And so he says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. The poor often did not get a fair shake in ancient times. And even today, that's the case, isn't it? The poor often do not get a fair shake. They're not always treated equally under the law. But this king is coming and he will judge perfectly each individual. He will render perfect justice for every person who comes before him. Now, that's kind of scary news. That's kind of scary news if you believe, as we confess, that we've sinned against God and we've sinned against our neighbor. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's scary news to think about the coming judgment of this king whose judgment is perfect and will not be fooled by excuses or appearances. But the good news for sinners like me and you is that this judging king is also a merciful king. He's a saving king. He's a gracious king. In fact, he is the same king who comes in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant of God. By his stripes we are healed. And out of the anguish of his soul, God's servant will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So this king 
pays for our sin by his sacrifice and covers our unrighteousness by his righteousness. The great exchange, the great mercy and love of God in this king, this judge, is my redeemer. He's your redeemer as you look to him. God promises this judge will come with perfect justice, not only to judge, to render judgment on individuals, but also to restore the world. Some of this language is startling, isn't it? With the breath of his mouth, he shall kill the wicked. It's not going to take an army. It's not going to take a weapon. But he will render justice on the wicked by the breath, by the word of his mouth. It's startling language. But then think of how often evildoers get away with wickedness in our world. Think about how many murders go unsolved. Think about how much bloodshed there is in the city of St. Louis. We have a friend whose son was murdered in St. Louis about eight years ago in a heinous way. And she, the mother, has been trying for eight years to get the police interested in solving this case. She's gone to the police. She's brought cookies to the police station to try to continue a positive relationship so that they will look into this case. It's been eight years, and there's not a lot of interest in solving the murder of this 19-year-old boy. Her heart cries out for some sense of closure, for some semblance of justice. You see, and by the way, say a prayer for her, because as a church, we're going to be writing a letter to try to get the police to open this back up. But that's a mother's heart for justice. That is our heart when we see injustice. And God is promising here a day that is coming of perfect justice when that longing will be fulfilled. And not only perfect justice, but beyond that, and we don't have time for this today, but beyond that, a perfectly restored creation where the lion or the wolf will lie down with the lamb. There will be perfect harmony and perfect peace because the earth will be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. What a prophecy. What a vision. It's all bound up with this king. And we may wonder, is it just wishful thinking? Beautiful words. Beautiful words to hear this time of year. Beautiful words to sing this time of year. To sing and to hear Handel's Messiah singing this. It's beautiful. Is it true? Or is it just wishful thinking? There's a difference, friends, between wishful thinking and hope in the living God. There's a difference between wish and faith. A wish is a desire. Now, I looked this up 
in the Oxford English Dictionary. So this is authoritative. A wish is a desire for something that one believes will give one satisfaction, especially something one thinks can't really be realized. So you think, I, I would love this, but it's not going to happen. I wish. You know, as we near Christmas time, naturally our children are asking us for things. And some things fall into the wish category. My son, Sam, is obsessed with heavy machinery. Excavators, bulldozers, tractors. He's enamored by these things. And he's told me a couple of times, Dad, I think we need an excavator. A bulldozer, or maybe just a tractor like Grandpa has. That's a wish. <laughs> Even if I wanted to do that for him right now, I don't have the resources to get him an excavator. But he's also asked for a toy bulldozer and excavator. Now that is something more like biblical hope. It's not empty faith. It's not a wish, because I've proven in the past I can give him gifts like that, you see. And when it comes to believing this prophecy of a perfect king, it's not a matter of wishful thinking, but of faith and hope in God who has proven himself. He's proven he's in control of history. We don't have time to go through all this, but... This prophecy and these prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah have already been partially fulfilled. God has sent kings. He sent in partial fulfillment of a prophecy like this. Good kings to Israel. Kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. And then after Babylon, he raised up a ruler. Cyrus, the king of Persia. Isaiah actually names him. Before it happened, Isaiah names him. In Isaiah, is it 44, 45? And, and what that shows is that God is in control of history. And then God sent his son who lived a perfect life in our place and died the death for sin that we deserved. And then God raised him from the dead on the third day, vindicating, demonstrating proving that Jesus really was this promised king. And so, friends, God has fulfilled his promises. God is fulfilling his promises. God will have faith that God will fulfill all of his promises in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. And even now, you come to us full of promises that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And even now, we can think of the ways in which you have fulfilled some of those promises in our lives today. The forgiveness of sin. The presence of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, God, that these fulfilled promises gives us hope for the future. Help us, God, now to live according to this, clinging to this, 
today and throughout our days until the very end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.